This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Could kindness, love, and community actually make you healthier and happier? Research says that it does. A 1978 study looking at the link between high cholesterol and heart health in rabbits determined that kindness was the difference maker between a healthy heart and a heart attack. And new research supports this. A new book takes a look at how these types of interactions can have a greater impact on our health than uh, medical interventions. The book is titled The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. It was written by Dr. Kelly Harding, who's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, and she joins us right now. Kelly, thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. So for all of this work in terms of medical techniques and and new ideas coming out, how much of a role does kindness and and these types of emotional approaches uh, really play a role? Sure. So as a physician, I was completely shocked. Uh, So, you know, most of us, when we think about health, we think about sort of like diet, exercise, sleep, the occasional trip to the doctor. But it's really quite striking because there's decades of evidence that show that, in fact, probably the biggest contributor to our health is our relationships. So so did, for you, did this fall into one of those categories where the medical uh, medical side is so surprised by how the emotional elements play as a role here? Well, it's one of those things that as a doctor you see every day. And, you know, for me, the way that I got interested in this is I kept seeing patients that would defy their diagnoses. You know, somebody with a really serious illness on paper looks terrible, but then you meet them in person and they're doing pretty well. They're living their lives, you know, to the fullest. And even though they have an illness, they're still thriving in many respects. And then the flip side of that was, you know, seeing patients all the time with what are treatable diseases, but they're still, or conditions, but they're still not doing well. Or, you know, often, too, people who sort of medically everything checks out, but they just feel really lousy or they have pain that can't quite be explained. So that's sort of how I got interested in this. Right. And then, you know, the data shows that it's probably, you know, while quality medical care is absolutely critical, it probably, and access to it probably only accounts for about 10 to 20 percent of our health hmm. so then that made me wonder what else is yeah. out there that's contributing <laughs> there's a lot of territory still to cover then correct absolutely so you know genes definitely play a role but what was so shocking to me is that they're not as fixed as you think and then right. you know lifestyle is important but probably again it comes back to our relationships and what we're talking about is how we're treated on a day-to-day basis in all the different areas of our lives you know from our homes to our schools to our communities and neighborhoods to our workplaces and our broader community so how prevalent do you think people in general associate our health with some of these emotional elements, especially when you're talking about all the areas that that you lay out in the book, our work, our education, our neighborhood, our social ties, the intimate relationships that we have? Is it something that that people do really associate on, on on a regular basis? I would say absolutely not. And I think that's that's the thing. We've been defining health so narrowly in this country that it helps explain 
you know, why we're not doing as well as we could. Because, you know, when you sort of take a step back and look at the big picture, you know, we spend a fortune on medical care in this country, you know, far more than other countries per capita. But at the same time, we're not getting the health results we want. Like we're practically not even on the same graph. And it's, I think, you know, when you sort of look at the decades of public health data, it's probably because we're we're really doubling down on the medical care and we're not investing, uh, you know, in our social world the way that we could. And that being said, you know, medical care is important, but we also need to rethink about how, you know, how we're supporting people out in the community. Because, you know, as a doctor, you can fix the body, you can fix the leg, you can fix what, you know, the problem is and still fail the patient. And, you know, that's, that's part of this is that we need to be talking about a much broader understanding of health that involves these day-to-day interactions. So just to give you an example, because I know that there are a lot of probably CEOs listening to this out there or managers, but you know, the strongest predictor of a man's death from heart disease studies have shown isn't cholesterol or blood pressure. It's his job. So, or her job. So, you know, the idea is that we need to be really thinking about, like everyone knows it's important to have a good doctor, but it's also important to have a good manager and to give people the skills that they need to be good managers. One of the areas that that we've talked about on this show over the last several years, and you mentioned it in your book, is the role that that this new kind of mindset, and, and maybe it's not necessarily new, but it has the opportunity to develop as we move forward, is that it also could potentially address some of the economic questions of healthcare that that we have at play here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's easy to get sidetracked with the razzle dazzle of biomedicine, and absolutely, we need to invest in research and uh, you know all those good things. The other side of this is they're really low cost interventions that are community based that can have huge impacts on people's health down the road. So, you know, um, in the book, I joke about how we talk about being, you know, tough on crime, but we really need to be gentle on new moms and families. Like we need to provide support from the beginning of life Mm -hmm. to try to help people along and, and also help buffer the stresses that may come. So when you talk about the interventions that that we need to see occur, you're talking about even at the at the the, the lower levels of our community, the local level, you know, of how government interacts with with uh, with its people as well. Well, this is what I find really exciting because, you know, we can all sort of sit around and talk about how we wish the system would change, but this is actually something that every person who's listening to this can do something about. And that is incredibly empowering. It's because really it comes down to the support that we're having and all these different factors. So, you know, the hug you give your child when you walk out the door, your spouse, you know, that makes a difference. And not only with them, and now it's really cool because there's this really exciting science of epigenetics and telomere research that shows that, you know, that that loving actions actually change our physiology. And that, you know, the rabbit studies, it's those were just that was just the tip of the iceberg, just the beginning of the studies. Yeah, if you can, can for those that that hadn't heard of that study before, can you take us back in time and, and explain what that study was and what it really kind of showed? Oh, sure. So 
So the rabbit study was this groundbreaking study. And again, I think what's so fun as a scientist is a lot of times the most interesting findings are accidental. So this was a true accidental finding. So it was back in the late 70s when there was this question of, does a high-fat diet affect your heart health? So Dr. Robert Neerum was doing this very straightforward experiment involving genetically identical rabbits, giving them all high-fat diets. And what he noticed, is when it came time to look at the health of the rabbits, that there was one group that was just doing particularly well. And so he couldn't figure it out. He thought they'd done something wrong with the study. So they they looked around and they realized what was different about that one group is that there was a uh, researcher that wasn't just uh, you know, giving the rabbits kibble. She was actually picking them up. She was petting them. She was talking to them. Right. You know, she was giving them love and kindness. So what they did as good researchers, one, they paid attention. And to their credit, that was at the time, you know, kind of uh, paradigm shifting that they paid attention to the social environment. And they were basic scientists, but they felt the data was just too striking to ignore. So they replicated it. They got the same findings. They published it in Science, which is, you know, a very prestigious journal. And you know, like many studies, it sat in a it it sat on a shelf for many years, um, and so that's why, in part, I really felt it was so important to highlight that study because it really embodies so much of the work that's been done subsequently. One of the areas that you touch on also in the book involves loneliness, and I know this has been an area that that a lot of people in the medical community are 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 starting to look at more and more, and the and and the medical impact of loneliness and how this kind of relates back to what you're talking about with the relationships that people have. Absolutely. So you know, loneliness kind of comes in. Um, two flavors. It's sort of like it's um, the number of connections you have, and then it's also how connected you feel to others. So, you know, that's it. Elvis used to have this saying that he'd feel lonely in a crowded room, which is sort of an example of the second one. Right. Um, and so the thing is, loneliness is as significant a health risk as well-established health factors such as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, um, you know, heavy alcohol use, even high blood pressure and obesity. So it's amazing, though, because I think, you know, for most of us, our experience going to see the doctor, they may ask how many drinks we have, how many cigarettes we have. But, you know, how many times did they ask, you know, when did you last call a good friend? Sure. When did when did you meet someone for dinner um, or coffee? You know, those, but, you know, those connections actually are quite critical and we need to start talking about them seriously. So that's why it felt so important writing The Rabbit Effect and making sure that that information is in the hands of all of us because we're making a difference. And the other cool thing is that, you know, once we're empowered with that knowledge of knowing that loneliness is not good for our health, we can actually start doing things within our circle of influence to make things better for other people. Well, it, it made me wonder, uh, Kelly, whether or not there's an element at play also here with the impact that the high divorce rate has here in, in the United States. Well, so it shows there's, there's studies about relationships and certainly what's happening in our home is a big piece of that. Um, and there's studies that show that, you know, being married is is health protective if it's a happy marriage. And um, actually, there's sort of other interesting studies showing that, you know, healthy, positive relationships and marriages can reduce pain if the if the relationship is strong. So, you know, I think the challenging part is it sounds like all good and nice to say, well, just be kind and everything will be fine. But, you know, 
being kind is a practice and it's hard and it involves having to learn to navigate conflict and conflict comes up, you know, many, many times a day. So, you know, part of it is also recognizing it's a practice and building our skill set because we have to be doing a better job of this. So how does education play into this? Oh, my gosh. So the education data for me was mind boggling um, on two fronts. So. So here's the thing, the, the statistics about education. So for every one life saved by biomedicine, it seems as though education saves eight. Wow. So just, yes. So just to put that in perspective and not finishing high school is the equivalent of a lifetime of smoking. So, wow. I mean, right. So I think we don't talk about that when we talk about education. So for all the teachers who are out there listening, you don't always think of yourself in a health role, but you're actually boosting the health of your students. And another piece of this might be that also, you know, education also is often linked to what we feel is a purpose or a calling. And this is where the data gets super cool because there's this and how sort of our social world gets under our skin. There's now increasing evidence that, you know, having a life purpose, feeling optimistic, all those things actually can um, it prolong telomeres, can help us live longer and help us live better even when illnesses do come. And then the hope is that you're also at the same time reducing stress levels that that, that obviously can have a neg- negative impact on on your health as well. Yeah, so it's probably, and I talk about that in the later part of the rabbit effect, but, you know, it's probably this sort of interplay between the hidden factors in our lives, the, you know, our physical and mental health, it's probably mediated by the stress response. Um, And so the question is how we can improve that because stress is just a natural part of life. But, you know, how can we learn to roll with things better? And the, the really great thing is, you know, it's not fixed. We can absolutely use techniques to improve that. And the other thing is we can help offset offset the stress in other people's lives. Like I mentioned the hug, you know, like hugging someone, uh, uh, positive interactions like that um, are plenty and they reduce stress. They um, boost the immune system. Spending time in nature boosts the immune system. You know, people who in hospitals that are exposed to a garden recover a day faster. They require less pain, less intervention from staff. Like there are all these like really amazing things that we can do that are low cost, but seem to have a really great health boost. Fairness is another uh, element that you tackle in the book. And, and I think there's, there, there's an assumption by a lot of people that, for the most part, our society, our culture is fair. I, I, I don't think anybody believes that that's the case 100% of the time. I think that would be, to, to a degree, a little bit of a lark. But, but I, you play out the fact that, that fairness does play a significant role in this. Uh, fairness. Fairness is a major predictor of health. And so I, I do go into that because, you know, I think as a society, there's a lot of conversation around sort of overt unfairnesses, but there's also these sort of, they're known as microaggressions, these things that happen over time. And what's interesting is um, they tend to, you can even Google, you know, microaggressions and just look up sort of examples of them. There's a great website that was started by somebody at Columbia and, and it's managed by students that sort of shows these tiny little events that happen during the day, but they have a cumulative health effect. And um, it's actually pretty fascinating. It's sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts or something. And it can happen in a variety of ways. I think what's encouraging there is that 
you know, we can all sort of become more aware of our biases and try to, you know, be kinder to other people by not adding to those paper cuts, essentially. So, for instance, like with the medical students at Columbia, we, um, you know, have them all take the IAT, which is an online test where you can look at implicit bias. And, you know, the most important takeaway from those tests is just the idea of sort of thinking, well, maybe I have some assumptions and actions that I'm not even aware that I'm doing. You start out the book asking an interesting question. What are we missing in medicine? So I I will pose that to you. What do you see as being the missing components in medicine right now to be able to tackle these these issues uh, on a greater level? So that's the question. That's the million-dollar question that's been driving my career. And I think it comes down to kindness. It really comes down to thinking about, how we're treating each other both on an individual level and then how we're treating each other as a society. And it's all those social dimensions of health that we are not talking about in the hospital. And, um, you know, I think as a, as a clinician, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people, like people who are listening, who work in healthcare, you know, there are high, high rates of burnout. And I think part of it is because we're aware that we're not addressing this and it feels overwhelming to put that responsibility just on the healthcare system alone. You know, this is really all of us. It's, it's treating each other with dignity and learning to navigate conflict in a way that's about supporting people, not tearing them down. And, and what we could potentially be looking at moving forward with a greater focus, greater emphasis on, on, on these types of elements could be what in your mind? Well, it's keeping in mind those relationships. I think, you know, again, going back to the CEOs who are listening, it's like, you know, we're so focused sometimes on the bottom line of things, whatever industry we're in, we need to be looking at the process and the people involved. Like you could probably toss out your, you know, um, human relations manual and just rewrite it as be kind. Like we need to be kind to people in our schools, in our um, workplaces, and all of these different capacities. When you're driving on the road listening to this, be yeah. kind. You never know what else somebody else has going on. And, you know, we can learn to be more empathetic towards one another. And boy, we need it right now. <laughs> Kelly, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's a fantastic book and a, and a great area to focus on. Thank you very much for your time today. Oh, my goodness. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you. Kelly Harding uh, at uh, Columbia University uh, Medical Center, assistant professor of psychiatry. The book is The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 